Paul says, I, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Paul was running out of ink, so he just stopped. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in the past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And I thank you, Lord, that we've transitioned out of all that of Paul's warnings and admonition and rebukes and everything not to do. And now we're getting into what it is to do. So I pray, Lord, that we would understand what Paul is teaching here and that by your grace, day by day, we would learn to walk in it. And so, Lord, teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, couldn't be seated. Yeah. So as we approach this uh, next section in the book of Galatians, uh, there's going to be some differences in, as far as perspective coming at it, just simply because all of you have come from different places, traditions, backgrounds in the faith. And, uh, and for whatever reason, God has decided in the last couple of years to bring them all into one building which I believe is a good thing. Uh, we are not uh, like many Calvary chapels in California where people were born and bred Calvary Chapel. Uh, we uh, are just a mixed multitude of all kinds of different theological perspectives and traditional backgrounds within the faith. And with that, as I've said, comes different perspectives on certain things. Uh, just as uh, Romans chapter 1 through uh, 5 verse 15 was uh, it can be controversial within the body of Christ, so is this one phrase, walking in the Spirit. Uh, because there has been multiple views over time about this. And um, so uh, we want to discover always uh, what the Scriptures mean by what they say, in spite of what we may have heard from uh, a, a parent, uh, a theologian, or whatever, and let the scriptures define for us what it, what it is to walk in the spirit, how does it work, what is it, all that. So that's really going to be our goal, uh, of course, in the next couple of weeks. Um, I've read the whole section to you. We're certainly not going to get into the whole section. In fact, we're only going to exegete the first verse. Um, but I need to define terms. I need to lay a foundation biblically of what the terms and the concepts are so that there's no confusion as we go into the rest of the section. Fair enough? Okay. I'll try to make it as charismatic as I can. Right? Uh, even though my friend says I have a melancholy personality. 
So, Lord, fill me with the Spirit, I guess. So, verse 16, if you would return there, I don't mind. However, God has wired me. It's it's good enough for him. He's good enough for me. So, as long as it's a a me, uh, the Holy Spirit expressing himself through me. I'm quite comfortable with who I am. (laughs) Verse 16, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, I say then, uh, it's in the context of a lot that has been said up to this point, right? As Paul has been addressing all of this false teaching from the Judaizers, these, uh, these legalists. And so I want to make sure that we have that in the back of our mind before we get into I say then. So I want to just refresh your memory. Uh, the Judaizers were saying, but Paul is saying, now I'm going to say, and it, it, it does, it's reminiscent of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, who, you know, Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And so when Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, he's, he's talking about rabbinical tradition and the views that the last couple generations of rabbis, their views of the scriptures, how they were interpreting the Old Testament. So Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, you've heard this interpretation of the law, And he says, but I say to you. And then he would give the inspired interpretation of the law. And so just as the the first century Jews were being subjected to rabbinical interpretations of the law, the Galatians now, after Paul had uh, shared the gospel with them, discipled them, established churches, he had went further west, and then the Judaizers came in and then introduced and subjected them to all of their teaching. And that somehow, probably by a letter or a messenger, has been communicated to Paul. And they've shared with him all this garbage that the Judaizers have been saying. And so Paul is now writing back in response to all of that, saying, I say then. So the Judaizers were saying that you have to live according to the law. But Paul says, no, you have to die to the law, Galatians 2.19. Completely opposite things, okay? The Judaizers said, the legalists, that we're made righteous by keeping the law. But Paul said, no, we become righteous through faith alone. Alone. It's hard to get that in our skull sometimes. The Judaizers were saying that all of God's blessings come by way of keeping the law of Moses. But Paul said, no, all of the blessings of God come by way of believing the gospel of Jesus. The legalists said that the law is a blessing. Paul said, no. Galatians 3.10, the law is a curse. The Judaizers said that the promises of God are given to those who obey the law. But Paul said, no, his promises are contingent upon faith alone. The the Judaizers said the law leads to practical righteousness. But Paul said, no, the law convicts of unrighteousness. The Judaizers said that the law is a liberator. But Paul said, no, 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 the law is a taskmaster. It brings you into bondage. The Judaizers were saying that the law will bring you closer to Christ. Paul said, no. The law alienates you from Jesus, alienates you. The Judaizers said that the law inspires us to live righteously. Paul said, no, by the law is all manner of evil desire. The Judaizers said that without the law, there's nothing to restrain the desires of the flesh. But we've already demonstrated that the law does not have that ability. So Paul responds, I say then, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the desires, the lust of the flesh. Okay. So 
that's, this statement here follows immediately in the context on the heels of two spiritual maladies, two spiritual problems that uh, the Galatians were tangled up in. People get tangled up in it today. Paul mentions both of them uh, along with their remedies in the last section. And he's doing it as an introduction, uh, almost in passing, uh, into this new section that he's going to talk about. The first malady was mentioned back in verse 4, and then the second is in verse 13. Here they are. The first one, he says, those attempting to be justified by law have become estranged, alienated from Christ. They have fallen from grace, Galatians 5, 4. Uh, while others were trying to use their liberty in Christ as an opportunity for the flesh, that is to gratify uh, the lust of their flesh. Okay, so those two problems are the, the two extremes of, of what we would say how the, the pendulum swings. Okay, legalism on the one side and moral liberalism on the other side. They're both dangerous and they both need to be remedied in the life of the believer. Okay. So Paul mentions them. To those trying to become righteous by keeping the law, Paul says, for we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. So what he's saying here is those of you that have been estranged from Christ and have fallen from grace by trying to become righteous by keeping the law can remedy this, this alienation by faith, as you trust in the Holy Spirit for righteousness. Okay? They, they have to stop trusting in their own ability to become righteous by means of the law, and they have to start trusting the Spirit alone, who alone can actually produce righteousness in a human being. Okay? And if you remember, the Galatians were previously uh, rebuked, scolded back in chapter 3, for trying to become righteous by their own efforts as opposed to the Spirit. Paul said, are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Another way of translating this is this way. He says, how foolish can you be? I don't know, which one is more condescending? Are you so foolish or how foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? Why would you do that? The Spirit has worked so mightily in you uh, through salvation, regeneration, uh, by demonstrating miraculous signs through the apostle, all of these things. Why would you begin that way and then now think that your own strength could produce the benefits that we all desire so much as Christians? Now, by the word perfect, Paul is talking about a finished product, a finished product, uh, not moral or sinless perfection. That's a, a danger that people have fallen into in church history, that through the Spirit we can come to perfection in this life and the flesh. Um, one um, famous evangelist who believed this, uh, he would go on his circuit preaching and as he was preaching, one time his wife barged in the back of the church and said, don't listen to that hypocrite. <laughs> I leave my wife at home on those days. <laughs> A finished product, not flawless perfection. How many guys have old puzzles at home? And they're a little tattered. Uh, the, the edges are frayed and they're bent. And maybe a little of the laminate's gone. 
but you still have all the pieces, right? What do you do when you don't have all the pieces? It's frustrating, huh? Yeah, and you start looking to your children. Um, if you take that old, tattered puzzle and you put it together, last piece in place, that is the Greek word that Paul is using here. It's complete. It's old and it's kind of trashed and it's pretty messy. It doesn't look so good. I can almost identify what the original laminate picture looked like, but all the pieces are there. It's, it's full. Well, that's really kind of like us. We're pretty tattered. We're pretty busted. We have some things in our past that we're not proud of and we shouldn't be proud of. But the Holy Spirit, by his grace and his work, he, he brings that tattered mess to completion. Now, we won't stay that way, thank God. When we die or we are translated, as it were, uh, we will be made completely new, and just like Christ was at his resurrection. But for now, we got to live with what we got, okay? But what we got can be brought like that broken down old puzzle to perfection, to completion, okay? Uh, now, I think that's encouraging, by the way, uh, because if moral perfection, flawless perfection was required, um, how many of you would be encouraged by that? Not a lot of hands. I'm glad. Because we would make fun of you if you raised your hand. <laughs> yeah. He, Paul is using uh, the word to describe a Christian who is being uh, spiritually, or the Christian who is spiritually maturing. Uh, in the Greek language, it's in the present tense. It's not in the past tense. Uh, it's something that is ongoing. It ought to be ongoing in the life of the believer who is progressively growing in their spiritual likeness to Jesus. Amen? We should be in progress. If, if I was to show a graph uh, on the screen, uh, your life, my life, as uh, day by day as we live with Christ, it should kind of look like this. I know ideally we would like it to just look like this. But our life doesn't even do this, it, it does this. But instead of downward trend, the same way we want our stocks, right? To go like this. That's just reality, in, even in the life of the Spirit, because we're just so broken and tattered. He has to work with us. But he has lots of super glue, okay? He knows what he, he's after, praise God, okay? So we're in progress of growing into the spiritual likeness of Jesus. So how does one come to a place uh, of spiritual maturity? How do we become more and more holy? Is it by the flesh uh, or is it by the spirit? Now, the statement in the spirit, in the realm of the spirit, refers to the Holy Spirit's ability uh, in himself to produce holiness in the believer. Uh, who would have thought the Holy Spirit, uh, his job would be to make us holy? Okay, now, this is held in contrast to that which is done in the flesh. So when Paul says by the flesh, he's talking about one's own ability. The flesh refers to uh, man's moral strength, which we know from our own lives and we know from human history, um, we just don't have a lot to offer, do we? Okay. Not a lot of moral strength. We have a lot of moral brokenness. So does a Christian become spiritually mature by his own moral strength and ability, or does he become mature by way of the Holy Spirit, his strength and his ability? Well, Paul says that uh, you're mental. Uh, that's actually a legitimate translation, by the way. Uh, you're mental if you think you can accomplish holiness in your own strength. Or you're foolish. You're kind of a dummy. If you think 
that in your brokenness, that you can meet up to the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Okay? That's something a fool would try, which all of us have tried. And by all of us, I mean even Paul included, I think. I, I'm thankful that his story is there in Romans 7, uh, chapter 15 through 25. As a redeemed man, he said, the things that I desire to do, that's not what I do. But the things that I hate, those are the things that I do. So he's confessing that he does not have the moral strength to meet this high calling of God in his life. Okay? It cannot be accomplished by human effort. But in Galatians 5.5, 5, Paul says that through the Spirit, we are eagerly waiting for the hope of righteousness that comes by faith, or this faith interaction, this faith relationship with the Holy Spirit. So spiritual maturity comes by way of the Spirit as we walk day by day in his strength. The graph doesn't go like this, but it goes like this. Okay? So it is the Holy Spirit who produces righteousness in us. He's the one that cures the ailment, as it were, of being estranged from Christ. Now the other problem on the other end of the spectrum, as the pendulum swings, is that of using Christian liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 3. Okay? Now, Paul uses the same word for flesh as he did in Galatians 3.3, 3, but here he uses it in a different way. But there is no difference in regard to what it is, what the flesh is. Here, the flesh has to do with its natural tendency, which you know all about. It's, it's the tendency to satisfy self, to be self-seeking, self-interested, self-consumed, self-gratifying. We mentioned last week that that. The end will be a time of peril because men will be lovers of themselves. There would be no peril in men loving everyone else. That would be beautiful, wouldn't it? But the end will be a perilous time because we'll be totally self-consumed with ourselves. Uh, get on social media. We can see that we're in the end. Okay? And the solution to this spiritual ailment is through love serve one another. Love others as yourself. So self-love, as we mentioned last week, it's inordinate, it's toxic, but when it's turned right side out and bestowed on others for their own sake, for their ultimate good, it becomes pure. It becomes holy and undefiled. By loving others by the Spirit of God, you're really being delivered from yourself. Amen? Yeah. But see, Turning our love right side out is also a work of the Holy Spirit. It's a work of the Spirit. Okay. The Christian faith and way of life, becoming righteous and restraining sin is only possible as we walk in the Holy Spirit. Okay. This is what is so peculiar about the new covenant that we've been, as Paul would say, delivered into. Okay. Um, Remember, the Old Covenant made all kinds of moral demands, okay? all kinds of demands in the law. But never in the law is there given to its constituents the enablement to fulfill it, to perform it. Do this, and there is no strength to do it. That's not the case with the New Covenant. Uh, in the Old Testament, as this experiment of humanity was, was going on and there's just complete moral failure, 
uh, toward the end of Israel's captivity in Babylon, and they were there for being disciplined for their rebellion, God spoke to Ezekiel, the prophet, about the new covenant. And this is what he says. He says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll take the hard heart out of you and I'll give you a heart that is um, shapeable. It's soft. And here it is. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you'll keep my judgments and do them. This, this is unlike anything in the old covenant. Okay? Through the gospel, we receive a new heart, okay? a new spirit. We get the indwelling of God Almighty, the Holy Spirit in us, who enables our obedience. Okay? So a new cov- the new covenant is fulfilled in the life of the believer as we trust in the one who has come to indwell us, indwell us, as we yield to his leading. True righteousness is achieved and sin is restrained in the life of the yielded believer. Okay? But on the one end of the spectrum, uh, we try to make ourselves righteous by our own efforts, okay? which is still something done in the flesh, which results in alienation. And on the other end of the spectrum, our flesh wants to indulge in all kinds of sinful things, which also leads to separation. Both are a work and a product of the, the flesh. So Paul says, I say then, in response to all these problems in humanity, I say then, walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of your flesh. Okay, so uh, the, the text itself, to walk in the Spirit means to live according to the rule of the Spirit. Now, by rule, I do not, it, the, the, the text, the word does not mean rules. The, 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 it doesn't mean the rules of the Spirit. It's talking about his government, his leading his guidance, his prompting. That's what that means, to walk in the Spirit. It's not, it's not the Old Covenant again where here's a bunch of rules. It's not the same. Okay? The rule, Ur, dwells inside of us so that he might, through faith and cooperation with him, live out of us, live through us. So a couple things here. The Holy Spirit is always leading the believer and providing rule, always. There's never a time in the life of the believer where he ceases to provide government for us. Never a time, okay? But we are commanded to walk, to cooperate with his government. We're not a, we're not a passive subject, okay, on whom the Holy Spirit does his will, okay? It's true that we cannot affect our own holiness or righteousness. We can't make ourselves mature in the faith, but we can hinder the Spirit from accomplishing his work. Now, I hear the objections from some people, but the Holy Spirit is sovereign. Well, that's true, uh, but so is this. And so perhaps your definition of sovereignty needs to change. Okay, We can cause problems in all of this. The Holy Spirit does not coerce. He doesn't force us. Paul told the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the Spirit. That is, do not extinguish his leading. You're not a passive subject, are you? In a very similar text to what we're uh, discussing in Galatians chapter 5, Paul told the Ephesians, he said, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, Ephesians 4.30. So the rule of the Spirit, the guidance of the Spirit can be quenched, and he as a person, because he's not a force, okay, he as a person 
can be grieved by this unwillingness of ours to yield to him. So while the Holy Spirit can be most compelling in the life of the believer, he is not coercive okay, or forceful in this context. Now, there's other contexts where he is forceful. He is coercive. Um, when you get to heaven, you can ask Jonah all about it. Okay, uh, He got Jonah where he wanted. Uh, Jonah could have continued to uh, resist and argue and debate and all of that stuff. Uh, who knows what would have thrown him up into Nineveh if he had rejected still. But the, the spirit, he can be quenched. He can be grieved. Okay? We have the responsibility to obey the commands, to walk in the spirit by walking in step with him. The scriptures never command us to do something that um, we don't have to do. We have to do it. To not walk in the spirit is sinful. Isn't that true? I mean, if, if, the, if the Holy Spirit tells you to do something and you don't do that, what is that called? If your children, you tell them to do something and they don't do that, what is that called? It's disobedience. Yeah. And you probably deserve a spanking. And he can give them. Trust me. Uh, ask Paul. Okay. We must walk in step with him. And when we do that, we have this new covenant guarantee. It is a guarantee. He says, for those that do that, we will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. That sounds really nice. We will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. A couple things about this. This is not a guarantee that we will no longer have sinful desires. Do you understand that? Uh, I hope so. It's been a part of your experience since the day you got saved. You continue to have evil desires, right? Don't make me ask your spouse. You continue to do that. Uh, this is not a guarantee that we'll never again be tempted to sin. It's no guarantee of that. Yeah. A desire, understand, in itself is not sinful, and neither is it sinful to be tempted. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness in all ways that man is tempted, and yet he was what? He was sinless. It wasn't sinful to be tempted. Okay? And as far as desire goes, uh, your flesh, because of what it is, it will always desire that which is contrary to God. It becomes sin when you engage, okay? when you indulge, when you commit sin. Okay, we'll address some of that later in Romans chapter 7. Okay? The promise here is that when we walk according to the Spirit's rule, we will not fulfill those desires to satisfy those lusts. Okay? The flesh is never going to stop desiring evil, but we can live above it. But let's now talk about the flesh. This is so important. What is the flesh? What is the flesh? Now, in this particular context, Paul's not talking about this. It's not our, our, our body. It's not our anatomy, physiology, things like that. Uh, it's not to be confused with the ancient Gnostics who said that all flesh, this stuff, is evil. And so they had different kind of ideas about how we should live. One said, well, since it's all evil, it's all going to go to pot, we should indulge in it. The other one said well, that we should restrain it. And that kind of garbage was then carried over into monasticism uh, among the early monks. Okay. Paul's not talking about that. Here, in the context, flesh is something that's immaterial. You can't touch it. You can't see it. But you can't observe its effects. All right? The flesh is something morally ugly, but absolutely true about all of us. Something absolutely true. It happened at, uh, to us at our conception in the womb, and it will cling to us until the day of our death. Uh, David said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother 
conceived me. Okay, now heretics uh, screw up the original language here and say that this is a reference to his mother's infidelity. It's impossible in the original language. Okay? This is a reference to the moral condition of man's heart. We are sinful by nature from conception. Now, some more examples of this is before God destroyed the earth with the flood, he said this about us. Every intent of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. That's God's commentary on humanity. Okay? So because man's evil intent was unrestrained before the flood, okay, which had filled the earth with wickedness, God judged the whole earth minus Noah and his family. But notice something. Okay? The flood did not cure the condition of man's heart. The flood purged the earth of wicked people at the time, but it did not purge man of wickedness. Immediately after the flood, when Noah got off the ark, God commented again on the condition of our hearts. Then the Lord said in his heart, I'll never again curse the ground for man's sake, that is with water, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Man. Now, of course, man wasn't originally created this way, uh, our, our moral problem is no fault of God. When he first created Adam and Eve in the garden, they were morally perfect. They were sinless. They were completely innocent. Both their environment and their hearts were completely untouched by sin. But through a, a tragic series of events, you're familiar with the story, Adam, who represented all of mankind in the garden, he acted in rebellion against God by eating the forbidden fruit. And so as our representative, his actions became our actions. His rebellion became our rebellion. We fell with him. Well, see, understand, by his one act of rebellion, the untainted image of God in him was then twisted. It was distorted. Okay? It was effaced. It wasn't erased. Okay? It was disfigured, but it wasn't destroyed. Otherwise, it wouldn't be wrong to murder people. The Bible says we can't kill, not kill, we can't murder, because man was created in the image of God. James says you can't slander another man because in the image of God he was created. But it's pretty messed up in us, the image of God. Okay? And so Adam, the father of us all, the first man to sin through Eve, gave birth to little sinners. It's true. When God originally made Adam, it says that he created Adam in his image. But after the fall, after rebellion came into the world, they started having lots of babies for like 900 years. Isn't it good that we don't live that long, ladies? That's a lot of babies. But do you know what the text says when he started having kids? And Adam had kids in his own image. How dreadful a commentary in the Bible. Still in the image of God, but now carried with it the distortion of sin, the guilt of it, the contamination of it, all of that. His sin nature was passed on from one generation to the next so that mankind is collectively broken, a fact that is so obvious as we look at ourselves and humanity. Amen? Paul said, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, positionally, in Adam. So because sin spread to all men, so were all the consequences of sin, which is death in all of its many forms. So the nature of man is corrupted by sin, which contaminates not just everything we are, 
but all that we think, all of our motives, and everything we do and say, it's all contaminated, it's all tainted by sin. So much, so referring to our moral brokenness, Job asked this question, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing? Talking about us. He's saying that we've been soiled by sin, and so everything in us, everything that comes out of us, even that which appears virtuous, has a black thread through it called sin. The sad commentary on man is that our intrinsic nature craves that which is contrary to God. And the theological term for that is the flesh. The flesh. And this is why we cannot generate on our own the kind of life that God desires. Okay? Though we have been redeemed and we're born again by the Spirit, uh, as you've noticed, the flesh clings to you. Clings to you. Okay? We're no longer, as Paul says in Romans 6, we're no longer under its dominion, but we have not been delivered from its influence and appetites. Perhaps you've noticed that in your own life, in your children's life, or the government. It's there. We cannot escape it at this point in our existence. Paul concluded this way after an honest evaluation of himself after he was born again. He said, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Nothing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. So as a redeemed man, Paul confessed that he had the will to do what was right. When somebody is born again by the Spirit of God, the will is immediately transformed. We have a desire to live for God, but when Paul evaluated his own strength, his moral strength, and his own resources within his humanity, he discovered that there was nothing in the inventory that could accomplish what his redeemed will desired. That is, that's a troublesome place to be. Okay? He could not live a life pleasing to God, and that's why chapter 8, live a life pleasing to God on his own, but that's why chapter 8 then transitions into a discussion about, guess what? Walking in the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit. Just as we are talking about in Galatians 5.16. If we are to live above the appetites of the flesh, we must rely on a person, and that person cannot be us. It has to be someone that transcends us, someone that is beyond us, above us, in their, in their morals, in their strength. It has to be God himself. And we have to learn how to trust him or rely upon him so that we can avoid sin, and so that we can live according to the redeemed will, the will of God in us, okay? So who is it that can walk in the Spirit, by the way? And I I bring this up because from some traditions, some parts of Christian history, this uh, has been isolated to a few and not to all. So who can walk by the Spirit? The answer, biblically, uh, regardless of what any person in history has said, it's everyone who is born of the Spirit, everyone who is regenerate. If you've been saved, uh, you can walk in the Spirit. This is not for so-called super saints, okay, or the believers that have special roles in the body of Christ. There is no such thing as a special role in the body of Christ, really, uh, or as if there's, there's some in the body of Christ that have roles and others do not. That's a very Western uh, idea of the church, 
that, you know, the pastor, uh, he's the minister and so forth, and, and we are just consumers. Oh, that's very Western there. But it's completely heretical. It's unbiblical. As I read Ephesians 4 at the beginning, you can read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, or you can just read your New Testament and you'll just discover something completely different. Okay, yeah. There's no special person in the church who has the, the privilege to walk in the Spirit. You know, the book of Galatians, as we know, as we've gone through it, was written to every believer in those churches, not just a select few. So the command to walk in the Spirit is to everyone that is born again, and the guarantee is made to all believers who walk in the Spirit, all of us. So the Holy Spirit is leading you individually. He's leading us collectively as well. But you as an individual believer, He's leading you. He's calling you in step with Himself so that He can change you, so that He can conform you to that wonderful image of Christ. Okay. 2 Corinthians 3.18. Same image of Christ. That's His goal. But you must learn to trust Him if you're going to enjoy His benefits, relying on His strength. Relying on your own strength will either make you a legalist or it'll strip you of a moral backbone and you'll be worthless for the kingdom. Okay, that's it. So I got to hurry here. What is walking in the spirit? This is where things can get very, very funny. Let me wrap up with this and I'll get you out of here. Historically, uh, there have been two uh, real heretical views that continue to find its way into the body of Christ. First, for some in church history, walking in the spirit has has been explained in such a mystical way that it fails to be practical in any way. I have a whole shelf of those guys up in my office. Uh, as I've grown in Christ, my understanding of the word, they've gone from the orthodox shelf to the heresy shelf, okay? Because uh, they're completely wrong about what it is to walk in the Spirit. It's so impractical, okay? When you read these guys, they, they often sound more like kung fu masters. That's what they sound like. There's, it's riddled with... Uh, riddles and enigmas, and they sound like an Eastern guru. Uh, and then when the Star Wars movies came out, then I really nailed it. You know, they sound like a Jedi master talking to their Padawan who needs to harness the force. And that's what we need to do, essentially. We need to harness the Holy Spirit. No, 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 no. No. The Holy Spirit needs to harness us. We are not to use the Holy Spirit. We're to be used by him. He's not a, a means to our ends. He, we're a means to his end, to his glory and his satisfaction. It's crazy. There's nothing like that in Christianity where it's mystic or, or, or this transcendentalism like Eastern religion. Okay? It's crazy. You know, I, I've read enough of the, the Vedas from India to know that you can affirm all those things that you want, but you can never live by them. You can never live by them. All right? Yeah. And then the fruit of that movement... This mystic version of Christianity has been not good. Other teachers in history have reduced walking in the Spirit to nothing more than human effort while calling it the work of the Spirit. And what these are is this usually is a particular personality, people that are well-disciplined, often moral people. But the fruit of this position typically leads to pride and a rigid expression of the faith where only those personalities can thrive. It's not practical to the rest of the body, and it's a false representation of the Spirit's work. It doesn't look like Jesus. When you read 
the Gospels, you get an idea of the disposition of Christ, don't you? He's a bulldozer to religious hypocrites, but he's tender to the sinner. Amen? God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. It's very different. You get that from Jesus. You know that he's making serious demands of you, but it's filled with this grace. So what is it to walk in the Spirit, really? Well, I can't go any longer. I need to cut you loose here. The challenge here in Galatians is that Paul doesn't tell us how to do it. He tells us to do it, and he tells us the fruit of it. It's probably because Paul was in Galatia and spent time instructing them personally. But there's a church that he wrote to that he spent no time with, and that's Romans, to the Roman church. And so it was to the Romans, not knowing if he would ever make it to them, that he gave the most comprehensive uh, explanation of what it is to walk in the Spirit. And that's Romans chapter 6 through most of Romans chapter 8. So this is what I'd like you to do. Uh, This week, I would like you to read Romans 6 through 8 and meditate on many of the details. And what I want you to pay particular attention to, and we'll, we'll go over a lot of this, incorporating it in the next couple weeks, is I want you to t- pay attention to the facts of redemption. Paul keeps saying, don't you know? You should know. Don't you know? He wants us to know the facts of redemption. And then he commands us to believe those facts, to appropriate them for ourselves. And then he tells us to yield our life to the Redeemer who has secured those realities for us. And then to set our affection upon him. And then that's when it's day by day, trusting him, that we get to partake and enjoy his benefits. Okay. So I want to leave you with that. I, 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 same problem in last service. You guys, there's too much responsive stuff going on and I can't get anything done. No. Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. All right. The flesh sounds so nefarious because it is. We need, we need help. Let's pray. Well, Father, I, I pray that as we're making this transition into the things of the Spirit, Lord, help, help us to understand and then help us to walk in that reality more and more day by day so that Christ, as Paul said, would be formed in us and then would be expressed through us to the world that so desperately needs him. Lord, give us a hunger, Lord, and a thirst for it. Help us to trust you. So Lord, I thank you for my church family. And this is the will of God for us, that we would walk by faith, relying upon the Spirit, so that our lives would be a demonstration of your grace and your goodness. So just help us, I pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.